Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I need to tell you that at the end of this message will be the end of our gathering. There's going to be an invitation given. It will probably not be the invitation you're thinking in your imagination right now. Rather, it's going to be about a 10-minute theological reflection on hell and the wrath of God. So as we hear and receive God's word, the Lord be with you. Credo, we owe a chicken to Asclepius. Do pay it. Don't forget those are the last words of Socrates as the poison hemlock he was sentenced to drink made its way to his heart. Plato describes the scene that Socrates faced death readily, cheerfully, and without a tremor. Greek and Roman histories are filled with such stories of prominent figures receiving death calmly. The same is true in Jewish writings. In extra-biblical writings such as First and Second Maccabees, we read about Jewish martyrs under the reign of Antiochus Epiphany who would uh, put a, a Jew to death every day in the court of the Gentiles in Ezra's temple. There's a story in Second Maccabees told of a woman with seven sons who was brought before Antiochus and Antiochus, sporting, playing with her, just said, you and your sons need to eat pork. And they wouldn't do it. And so one by one, each of the woman's sons were killed in front of her eyes. Each of them gave a speech, and this is the speech of the youngest son talking to Antiochus. 
But you, unholy wretch, you most defiled of all mortals, do not be elated in vain and puffed up by uncertain hopes when you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not yet escaped the judgment of the Almighty, all-seeing God. For our brothers, after enduring a brief suffering, have drunk of ever-flowing life under God's covenant, but you, by the judgment of God, will receive just punishment for your arrogance." Now we come, by contrast, to the approach of death that Jesus faces. As Lowell read it for us in Mark chapter 14, it happens that Jesus begins to actually see what's coming in the next 24 hours of his life. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, which seems to be almost a metaphor. Gethsemane means a place of crushing. It was an olive grove. Uh, and that's what was the environment outside was actually happened inside of Jesus. His spirit, his soul was being crushed. The text tells us that he was deeply distressed and troubled. Nowhere else in the entire New Testament are those words linked together, indicating this is a unique moment in biblical history. The idea of being deeply distressed could be translated shocked or awe, appalled, awed. It's as if the Son of God sees something now coming that stuns him. The second word, troubled, means to stagger, uh, as if someone pushes you. The, the stunning is actually now on you or related to you so that you begin to stagger. So Jesus is stunned and he begins to stagger. We need to feel that for a moment this morning. This would be something like you driving down C-470. Traffic begins to slow and be pushed to one lane, and you think, oh, no, there must be an accident. And you, sure enough, as you get closer and closer, you see it's an accident. A car is just mangled, maybe up on its roof. But as you get closer, you, you think to yourself, wait, that, that car looks familiar to me. And then you get up on it. You see the license plate, and you realize that in that car was someone you know, someone you love, and you are deeply distressed and troubled. That's how Mark, Peter's witness, Mark is writing Peter's story. That's what they see. Here's what we hear, because in the ancient world, you always prayed aloud. Jesus prays, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The word overwhelmed could be translated crushed. Jesus is dying before he dies. He has this inner anguish. The doctor Luke, who wrote Luke's gospel, was an actual medical doctor. He noted that Jesus was sweating through pores, and it's as if blood was coming out of his sweat glands. He is that anguished at what faces him now. Up until this point, Jesus had faced every day with a steely determination. He had said three times, I'm going to Jerusalem. There the Roman and Jewish authorities will capture me, torture me, and kill me. But now that it's on him, now that he sees it, he, well, there's no other way to say it. He hesitates. He's staggering. And now contrast that with 
Jesus' followers after the resurrection. He sends the Spirit down. The church is launched and empowered. And we have story after story of the Christian martyrs, the seed of the church, making bold and courageous witness as well as receiving death peacefully. We, we see it early in the history of the church in 160. A.D., when Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, wants to put down the Christian movement, he goes after the bishops first, and he, he finds first this old bishop named Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John. And Polycarp is 86 years old. The proconsul comes. He's wrapped around a pole, roped around a pole with the fire at his feet, the, the wood. And uh, the proconsul says, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. And here's what the old man says. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Jump ahead 1,500 years. The Reformation waves have come up on the shore of Great Britain, and there's uh, two preachers named Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer who have preached Christ alone and Scripture alone, and they have had significant pushback from the governing Catholic Church in Great Britain. And they are also in a public courtyard, wood around their feet, tied to a post. And here's what Hugh Latimer says, 1555. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a good candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Here's the two questions of the morning, and they're really one. Why do Jesus' followers seem to die better than him? Why? Is Jesus' death so difficult? The answer is in the question. Father, Abba, Father, if it would be possible, could this cup be taken from me? Cup. Cup is a metaphor from the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel all the way to the Apostle John in the Revelation. It's a metaphor. The cup speaks of God's divine justice. When every evil is reckoned, when every account is reasoned, when every wrong is made right, the divine justice of God and his emotional response to evil, which we call wrath. The cup is full of his wrath, God's emotional response to evil. The cup is full of God's justice. He will settle every account. Let's just get a picture of this as Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about it in the early prophets. Isaiah writing around 700 BC when Assyria invades Israel and the northern kingdom. God says, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. A hundred years later, 600 BC, when the southern kingdom of Israel falls, invaded by Babylon, Babylon, 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. You will drink your sister's cup. Your sister is Samaria or Israel, the northern kingdom. You will drink your sister's cup, a, a cup large and deep, and it will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry and chew on its pieces. You will tear your breasts. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. In that cup is the emotional response of God, wrath towards what's been done to his world. And in that cup is his divine justice, his unstoppable will that every wrong will be righted. And Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, could you take this cup from me. You see, up until this point, every time Jesus had related to his father, prayed, talked, it was something like what happened at his baptism and transfiguration. The Holy Spirit would flood his soul and the environment with his presence, and the father would speak, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And those were two significant times. But every time Jesus prayed, we wonder if that did not happen invisibly and silently where he had the full fellowship as he had from all eternity with his heavenly father. But here in Gethsemane, it's different. Here, Jesus goes to the father and he experiences the abyss, the nothingness of hell, the absence of the presence of God. He experiences the cup. Now for us, how do we look at that? What's happening in that moment? What's happening is that Jesus is becoming the Lamb of God. And on him is placed the concentrated load of every sin, every one of your sins, every one of my sins, the sins of the entire human world, the sins of the brokenness of creation, the fallenness of the world, everything concentrated and placed on him. And he experiences and absorbs into himself God's anger about what's gone wrong in the world and God's commitment to make it right by executing justice. Jesus absorbs that into himself. And when he does that, God's justice is satisfied. God's wrath is removed. Evil is dismantled. And God can forgive every sin without violating his holy character. He deals with sin and dispenses it because his son absorbs the justice and wrath of God. Now you could be sitting here thinking, wait a minute, Larry. Wait, wait. I don't believe in an angry God. The God I believe in is a loving God. He's not angry. And I don't like you using these words wrath and judgment. Haven't we evolved past that? Well, if I may, I'd like to push back on you rather hard on that. <laughs> Let me say it this way. If you don't believe in an angry God, you don't believe in a loving God. Because you know from your relationships with friends, with spouses, but especially if you're a parent, 
and your relationship with your children. You know that when you love something with your whole heart and that something or someone you love is threatened, their destiny or future is threatened, what's one of the emotional responses you feel? Anger. If someone hurts someone you love, you experience an anger, and that anger is right. Now, with fallen humans, we have to boundary that anger. It has to be a righteous anger. It has to be handled with a safety lock. But that experience of anger because someone you love is hurt, that's righteous. In fact, we have a word for it, especially the moms in the room. We call that anger mama bear. I know for my existence as a family, if you messed with my two sons, my wife's on your doorstep. You've been warned. There's a righteousness to that anger when something we love is threatened. And God is right and right to be anger when something that he made and created, something that he loves and set in his place, has been defiled, whether it's in the universe at large or whether it's in the image bearers of each of us. Something he made and owns that his image is on when it's hurt. He's mad. And T. Wright captures this well. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. If you don't believe in a God of anger, you don't believe in a loving God because your definition of love is far too shallow and nostalgic. I would also push hard this way. If you don't believe in an angry God, you don't understand your value. You see, the reason God loves you is not because you're so lovable. It's not because you're so good and valuable. The reason God's loves you is because he's placed his value on you. And because he's placed his value on you and you're an image bearer, that is why he is willing to go to the cross and endure suffering. That's why he's willing to take the cup. And in that moment when Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done, that's the moment the world is saved and you and I are saved because Jesus is willing to love us. He chooses to in spite of what we've done to him with our lives, to this world with our lives. I, I, I love, I, I think I've shared this with you in the past, but I love this reflection that a New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson out of Chicago writes. He's wrestling with the question, and it's always a good question for us to wrestle with. Why does God love us? What does it mean that God loves us? Let me, let me read this. Picture Charles and Susan walking hand in hand down a beach, sand squishing beneath their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does that mean? What does he mean? 
Well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than that he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her forthwith. But if we assume that he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile poleaxes me from 50 yards. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous you belong in a cartoon. Your hair is so greasy it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. So now... God comes to us and says, I love you. What does God mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. That, after all, is pretty close to what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. And dear old God is pretty vulnerable, finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes. When God says he loves us, does not he rather mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway, not because you are attractive, but because it is in my nature to love. I choose to love you. You are mine, and you will be transformed. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love because my son took the cup. What does it mean that God loves you? That's the kind of love that's pursuing us today. Why was Jesus' death so difficult? Because he took the cup, the wrath, the emotional response of God towards evil and the divine judgment and everything was settled so that divine justice could be enacted, wrath removed, forgiveness enabled, and God can forgive and still be holy. All of that accomplished because Jesus took the cup, but that cup comes to us today and we are still pursued by that love. You see it in the garden, right? The rest of the story, I never quite noticed this before until this week. When Jesus comes back and checks on the disciples, he finds them asleep, kind of like scolds them a little bit. Can't you stay awake? Can't you stay with me? And then he comes back a third time. Can't you stay awake? I never quite understood I guess I made the assumption that Jesus was doing that so the disciples would stay awake and pray for Jesus. That's not what's happening here. 
Did you catch that? Why does Jesus keep coming back to the disciples and wanting them to stay awake and pray? Because he's concerned about them. Notice what he tells them to pray. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. On the worst night of Jesus' life, when he is stunned and staggering, his primary concern is that his disciples are okay. That is love. And it's a love that's pursuing you today. He loves you. He brought you here this morning. He wants you to hear. He chooses you. He loves you. That's the love you've been looking for since the moment you were born. I'm sorry, but your spouse can't give you that kind of love. And if you're trying to get him or her to, you're going to crush your marriage. You can't get that kind of love from your friends. You can't get that kind of love from romance. You can't get that kind of love from your job, from anywhere else. Only Jesus can give you the Father's love, where you too can say, Abba, Father. And even on the hardest night of your life, he can keep you from staggering. His love is pursuing you. But I fear sometimes our hearts are resistant to his love. Let me unpack a couple of ways that I think we try to take the cup from Jesus and try to do it ourselves. Let's say you have a bad day. And what I mean by a bad day is a day you've been there if you follow Jesus. I know I'm there far too often. A bad day is when we commit a, a sin that we wrestle with, when we're disobedient. We have these kind of afflicting sins sometimes, whether it be lust or porn, whether it be gossip or lying. You could probably name yours. I could name mine. We all have these sins, and when we give in to them, when we fall again, what happens? Well, instead of practicing robust confession and repentance as we're directed to, and let me just briefly unpack, robust confession means that we actually tell another believer our secret sins because Jesus is in heaven with the Father, but his hands and feet are right here, other believers. Let me just say this directly. You will not gain any advance or victory over a secret sin as long as it's secret. I know that's a whole other sermon, but it needs to be said. But what do we do? Well, instead of practicing robust confession and repentance... We feel miserable because we've fallen and sinned again, full of guilt and shame. We go around, though, telling everyone else in our lives how unworthy we are. We're just down, a bad mood, and we, we rely on other people's good words to build us up, and we're like sucking them dry. You Can't you build me up? I feel so unworthy. I've sinned again. You don't tell them that you sinned again. But you, you're really feeling bad, and you have everyone else try to give you a compliment or a, a good word that will help you feel better. And then you sit around and wonder why you have no friends. It's because you're stealing the cup. Or we flip it and we have a good stretch when we're very obedient and we're doing all the right things and we have victory over some sins and we're doing what Jesus wants us to do and one of two things happens. Either we get very blessed, a lot of blessing comes into our lives and certainly there are times when we do things well, there's certain consequences and blessings that come from them. But we begin to think, oh man, because I've lived and doing so well, I earned these blessings. 
And then what do we begin to do? We begin to look on everyone else's life around us whose lives are falling apart, and we think, well, if you would just buck up like me and live the way I'm living, your kids wouldn't be such a mess. You wouldn't be having this kind of struggle. We become arrogant. We would never say these things, but we know what we're thinking. Or we do all this good stuff, we're living well, we believe we're obedient, and things are still going to hell in a handbasket. We lose our jobs, we lose relationships, marriage, kids go off the rails, whatever it is. We're working so hard to be good, but our life still goes disappointingly. Then what happens? Rage, anger. God, I'm trying so hard, and what are you doing? Every single one of the paradigms mentioned above come because we value the Father's love and acceptance of us by our performance instead of Christ's performance. We do not apply the gospel to our lives, and we take the cup from Jesus. Can I drill down? I'm going to. I just asked to give you some ownership in it. I I, want to drill down one more layer One of the besetting sins that I see around Waterstone, and I've wrestled with it in my life, is sexual sin. Some of us, you know, because it's just a habit that we can't break, we drag this around. Some of us, maybe something that happened 30 years ago, a mistake we made, or three days ago, but we've committed a sin. And for whatever reason, sexual sin sits very heavy in our souls The first thing that's kind of off with this picture is we think that there's a certain kind of sin that's worse than any other kind of sin when that's not really reality. All sin is sin, thought, word, and deed, and falls below the standard of God and is worthy of us being eternally separated from God, all sin. But for some reason, sexual sin seems to rank really high, and there's reasons for that. I mean, sexual sin usually involves other people, and it usually does sit deeply in our souls. That's part of the image of God, to be able to express love in certain ways. It does have a weight to it, but we drag it around and we drag it around. Here's what I want to say to you. If you're dragging around sexual sin today, Two things. One, see Jesus taking the cup. The cup is the cross. He went to the cross. May I ask you directly, what more does Jesus need to do besides going to the cross to forgive your sins? He's forgiven your sin. The only one holding on to it is you. It's why Christ died. What more does he need to do? We have this kind of Jesus plus mentality that if he's ever going to take the sexual sin, there's got to be something else. No! Jesus paid it all. You are forgiven. But we also forget to apply the other side of the gospel. It's not only that your sins have been placed on Christ and you're forgiven, but his righteousness has been placed on you. Now, stay with me. What that means is that when God looks at you and even your sexual sin, what does he see? He no longer sees your sin. He sees the sexual purity of his own son. Jesus lived 33 years with us and was completely faithful with his sexuality because you have chosen Christ and Christ has chosen you. That means your sexuality is as pure as Jesus was. 
his sexuality has been credited to you. And when God sees you, he sees clean. As clean as my son. Waterstone. You are forgiven. You are free. Repent of being overly discouraged by your sin. Keep the main event, the main event. The main event is not your sin. The main event is what Jesus has done with your sin. I thought I would get some more amens. That is the gospel. Apply it. Okay. Time for an invitation of wrath and hell. After this, we'll have a minute of silent prayer for you to talk about God, about whatever's triggered, to talk to God, and then we'll be done. This is from a book I highly recommend called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl by N.D. Wilson, one of the great young writers of our day. This book's worth your investment. The memory is only partial. The old pub was generous on weeknights between the hours of five and seven. Free food found its way magically into a wheeled cart, and drafts of on-site brews were $2 a pull. We sat around a table nursing $2 in liquid form and eating free cheese. My Catholic friend was talking about professors. My atheist friend was complaining about parking. Another atheist friend, a girl, was sitting thoughtfully staring at us, us believers who were outed in various seminar discussions. When the conversation lagged, she asked this question. Do you think I'm going to hell? Yes, my Catholic friend said without hesitation. He looked around. I do. People laughed, not because it was a joke, but because he was serious and unembarrassed. He was never embarrassed, an attribute I admired. She looked at me and leaned forward, hoping to hear the Protestant version. I don't know, I said. Do you want to go? What do you mean? She made an excellent questioning face, cocked head, eyebrows behind glasses. It was perfect for the classroom. Why, why would I want to go to hell? God is who he is. Do you want to be with him? Hell is voluntary. Would you like to go? I do not pretend to know what manner of hell waits on those who do not desire God, and it will be a question of desire not belief, dislike, not disbelief. The dead will stand before him, still living in another way. There will be no ignorance then. There will be no confusion, no distant, uneducated native used in evangelical guilt trips who never heard the good news and are surprised to find themselves beneath the eternal axe. All will believe in God in the end and all will be justly judged by the standard they themselves use to judge others. Even the demons believe. The demons saw the cross. The demons remember Easter. Heaven or hell is about love and hate. Do you love God or do you hate him? 
Is he foul in your nostrils? Do you see his art and wish your arm was long enough to reach his face? Or do you spit and curse like Nietzsche? Would you trade places with the damned thief so you might see God die and Jesus himself hear your complaints? Then, hell is for you. Hell is for you because God is kind and reserves a place for those who loathe him to the end. An eternal exile, a joyless haven for those who would eternally add to their guilt, a place where blasphemies are new every morning, a place less painful and less terrible than the alternative. The alternative, unless you change, heaven the glory of God, the burning holiness, the presence of the creator, the glory of his son, the winds of the fire of that storm of joy will be a worse hell for you than hell itself, whether it's literal or figurative. So look to him for a heart capable of loving him. The fires will burn hotter in heaven. Our tongues will learn their taste. If you displease him, he will displease you. He will put you away and remove the grace you have experienced in this world. With the crutches of his goodness gone, he will leave people to themselves, leave them to their own corrupt desires and devices. Have you seen people left to themselves? Did you complain about the absence of God when you did? Where is God in the genocides? Where is God among the gunned down and the maimed? You have glimpsed hell, a place where God allows that which displeases him, a place where people live in shadow. Do you resent this world, this art? Do you hate God for cancer, for car wrecks, for the sudden shocking sleep of the young? Do you hate him for those waves that break too high, for those hours when far more than 6,000 die? Do you resent your story, your height, your baldness, your itchy feet and unstable lower intestine, the forest fire sunsets and your own mortality? Buy cream for your wrinkles, whiten your teeth, have doctors staple back your scalp until you die and decompose and only the staples remember you. Go to him or go to hell. Those are the only two choices because hell is wherever God is not. Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was exile far greater than any hell-bound soul will ever experience. The Son, one God with the Father, experiencing divorce, separation from grace, left only with the filth, with incest and murder, malice and genocide, left with pride and envy, left with every self-righteous glance and resentful thought, left with the rags and rot that every soul uses to fill the God-shaped hole in their heart. Someone had to carry all of that to hell. If you want to love him, then he has already begun giving you change. He has already begun unclenching your fists, taking your filth to be laundered on the cross. 
He is spitting in the dust and making mud to bathe your eyes. Your crippled soul will pick up its mat and walk. He will lead you down the path and straight through the whale's belly. On the other side, you will stand up straight, remade. Bend your neck. But be warned, here the company is low and classless. Here are the whores, the thieves, the deviants, the downtrodden, the slaves, the unbeautiful, the lumpy, the people who look bad, even in suits. Even Christians are there. Here are the people who know their own worth. God is perfect. Justice and mercy are not abstractions. They originate in him, and every dead soul sees God's face. Every soul will stand before him and bend or clutch before he sorts. There will be no ignorant. We do not need to look over his shoulder. We cannot. We do not know which sinners look to the cross and which choose to hang on their own. We can only trust and bend. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.